Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite uh, Keith DeLong to bring us the word this morning. Keith. Well, good morning. morning. Bring greetings from Trinity Community Church up in North Fresno. I'm one of the elders at the church. And Matt has been kind enough to invite me to come and share God's word with you this morning. Will you turn with me to Titus chapter 2, the New Testament book of Titus chapter 2. Give you just a little running head start. We're going to run into uh, the second chapter of Titus. And so, since it's been a while since your church family has been in the book, I thought I'd give you a little bit of background and context as we get started. So, the book of Titus uh, was written by the Apostle Paul after he and Titus had visited the cities on the island of Crete, which is off the coast of Greece. It's an island about 250 miles wide, about 50 miles in depth. And there's a number of small cities. It was a port uh, island where ships would come and harbor and stay. And so Paul and Titus had visited this island of Crete. And there were some young, struggling churches. And as they spent some time there, we don't know how long, the Apostle Paul suggested and Titus agreed that he would stay as Paul moved on and help these churches out. And so as we look at chapter 1 of Titus, uh, we see that these young churches were uh, dealing with the idea of church leadership. So Paul tells Titus as he writes this letter after he left that Titus, appoint godly elders. This whole idea of the the letter is over and over, the connection between godly behavior and godly beliefs. The idea of what you believe determines how you behave. And so Paul starts out the letter saying to Titus, we need to get godly leaders appointed, appoint elders of character, of maturity, Godly men that exemplify what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And in the second half of that chapter, that first chapter, Paul tells the reason why he needs to do that, because there were teachers and leaders in the church who were anything but that. Uh, Paul says that they were upsetting families, teaching things they shouldn't teach, that they were doing things they shouldn't do, that their doctrine was terrible, but their behavior was even worse. Uh, Look with me there at... uh, at the verse of uh, in Titus, as he talks about what these kinds of people are, in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse twelve, Paul says, "One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, quoting one of their own uh, philosophers, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. How would you like that to be said about your culture? This is what Cretans are like. And, and these teachers were reflecting their culture in the church." And they were teaching things that they shouldn't teach. And so Paul is really concerned about getting the right kinds of teachers in. And that's his uh, first uh, part of the chapter. As you think about these kinds of people, it's interesting that not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Don't we hear constantly lies about our gender from our politicians on the news? Sometimes we don't even know what to believe when we read it in print anymore. Lying is rampant in our culture, and the Cretans were famous for their lies. Are we told in our culture, find your own truth? What is truth? Find uh, your own best version of yourself. 
We openly declare pride for evil and godless behavior. It's all, it's all around us. And like the Cretans, we're self-centered, self-gratifying, self-indulgent. I was thinking this week as I read Titus, if selfies were popular, the Cretans would have loved them. Social media would have been rampant with Cretans saying, look at me, because they are famous for being a godless culture that prided themselves in their evil. And it's in this context that Paul is telling Titus, I want to instruct you, I want you to instruct the church on how God's people can live godly lives in an ungodly culture. Really, really practical and relevant for us, isn't it? We live increasingly in an ungodly culture. And so this letter to Titus reads like something right out of 2023. And you'll notice that Paul, as he was teaching, he was constantly attacked. This is 40 years, 35 years into Paul's teaching. And everywhere he goes, his explanation of God's grace and living the Christian life is attacked. It's in almost every book that he wrote. It's in every letter and every epistle that there's this idea of what does it mean to live by grace and to be a different kind of people in a godless culture. That was not foreign to Paul, and it's a word we need so desperately today. So Paul starts chapter 2, and he gets very practical in the remaining part of the letters, chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 2, 1 through 10, if you've read it recently, you remember he tells Titus, teach things in accordance or, or, or consistent with sound doctrine, and then he gets very practical, and he addresses these church families that had been upset by these false teachers, and he says, Titus, teach the older men to be godly in their character. Teach the older women to be godly in their character in practical ways. Teach, have the older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands and be godly in practical ways. And he tells the younger men, be godly and live godly lives in practical ways. It's just really practical instruction to the church on how they're to live. And Paul gets through these first 10 verses and as he always does, he starts thinking, people are gonna twist these instructions. They're gonna modify the truth and make it mean things that it doesn't mean. So he takes these four verses, 11 to 14 of Titus 2, and he gives us the explanation of why theologically, why doctrinally godly belief leads to godly behavior and where that fits in God's economy for us. So we take a moment. Let's just read Titus 2, 11 to 14 together. For the grace of God, Paul writes, has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's very word to us, his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you inspired men to write down your very words to us, and we hear them this morning from the pen of Paul in this letter to Titus. Father, we pause and we ask that you who gave us the scripture your spirit who inspired Paul to write the scripture would make it alive and active and do a good work in our hearts. Lord, may my words reflect your truth 
May each of our hearts be open to your spirit to teach us and to lead us and to help us to be more like Jesus because we've sat under your word. Father, give us eyes to see your majesty and your glory and your grace and your kindness. Uh, They're all through this passage, and we love that about you, and we love that we belong to you. We thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, what I want to do is take these four short verses and have you hang them on three simple words. They're words that you've all heard before, but I want to put them in the context of God's word so that hopefully God can use them to encourage you and help you. And so these four verses I want to talk about under three headings, grace, gratitude, and glory. In verse 11, we'll look at God's grace. In verse 12, we'll look at our gratitude. And in verse 13 and 14, the glory of Jesus' return. And that's where we're going to cover uh, in our short time together this morning. So look with me, first of all, at verse 11, grace. Paul writes to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This for means I've just told all of you guys how to live. I've, I've told each member of the church family how, how they're to relate to their world, how they relate to one another. And before I go any further, I want to pause, Titus, and I want to remind you that this, there's a reason we do this for. For the, for the grace of God has appeared. And what do you think about when you hear the word grace? Think for a moment. Now, I was saved in a church called Grace Community, and this morning we go to a church called Grace Presbyterian. So maybe you think of your church when you think of grace. Maybe you think of the acronym that I was taught when I was first saved. Have you heard this? God's riches at Christ's expense. So the idea that grace is God's overflowing abundance, all that he is and has that he gives to us, And he can only give it to us because his son died for us and cleanses us from our sins. So grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you're more the theological type. Somebody like John MacArthur writes, Grace is God's unmerited favor towards wicked, unworthy sinners, by which he delivers them from condemnation and death. See, John is focusing on the complete unworthiness of the person who receives God's kindness and favor, who we are, enemies of God, unworthy of his kindness, and yet God loves us anyways, that's grace. So what do you think about when you think about grace? I've been encouraged by a scholar and a pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. Perhaps you've read some of his writings. I think he's one of the most profound and insightful thinkers of the Reformation today. And Sinclair Ferguson was asked a few years ago, what is grace? And I think his answer is profound and worth thinking about for a few minutes this morning. Somebody asked Sinclair, what is grace? And he says this, I've come to say that actually there is no such thing as grace. Partly because I think many Christians do think there is such a thing as grace. So we say, I receive grace. And there is this kind of sense that it is something between God and ourselves, between Christ and ourselves, that he gives to us that's almost totally separate from him. Do you see where he's going? So I think, Sinclair writes, the best answer to the question is, Jesus Christ is God's grace. And when the New Testament speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not thinking primarily about something that is given to us, but someone who is given to us. Isn't that an interesting way of thinking about grace? 
I read that a while back, and as I was reading Titus verse 11, interestingly enough, Sinclair is doing nothing but echoing the Apostle Paul, is he not? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. He's personifying grace. It's not a thing that I get from God. Grace appeared, and it's bringing something. It's bringing salvation. He's not thinking of a thing that we get from God. He's thinking of a person. Grace has appeared. Jesus Christ has appeared. He is God's grace in human flesh. And he's bringing salvation. He's bringing rescue from our, God's judgment for our sin. I was thinking about how to explain that, and I realized the very next chapter there's a great explanation where Paul amplifies. Look with me over at chapter 3, verse 4. Paul's amplifying this idea. Instead of saying, the grace of God has appeared, look in verse 4 of chapter 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. See, when God's grace appeared, he's thinking of Jesus because the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. Verse 5, he, not it, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God's grace is his goodness and his kindness sent to us and given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's so easy to think of grace as a thing. In the New Testament, over and over and over, when Paul is thinking of grace, he says, the grace of God has appeared and is the person of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Jonathan Edwards tried to make the opposite point once. He said, the only thing you contribute, or you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary. This idea of when we come to God for salvation, it's God giving us a gift. It's not us giving him anything out of the gate. It's God saying, I've come to rescue you. It's not us coming to God and saying, God, I want to bring you my life so that you can bless me. Our creator has been pursuing us ever since the fall, has he not? Think about Genesis 1 and 2. God gives us a perfect world. He makes an Eden with everything needed, everything wonderful, everything perfect. He puts man in the garden. He puts woman in the garden. He gives them to one another, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy. Be my rice regions running planet Earth. Only don't do one thing. Don't eat from this one tree, okay? And ever since Genesis chapter 3, when man and woman took and ate and rebelled, God has been demonstrating grace. You say, didn't he curse the ground? Didn't he curse man? Didn't he curse woman? But don't forget, right in the midst of all that, he told them, in the day you eat it, you'll die. And yet once they ate, what did he say? From your seed, Eve, is going to come one who's going to redeem, who's going to undo this curse. You have ruined everything by introducing sin and, and the breakage and the wreckage that sin is causing in the heart of mankind. But Eve, out of your out of your loins, out of your descendants, is going to come one. It's going to come a seed. And Satan is going to bruise him, but he's going to crush Satan. He's going to undo all that was ever done in this tragic act of the fall. And as we walk through our Old Testament into the New Testament, God is always and forever pursuing sinful, rebellious man, graciously loving him, wanting to restore him, promising to restore him back to being made in the image of his creator in perfect fellowship with his God in a sinless, perfect world. And we see God destroys the world, right? But what does he do in Genesis 9? He preserves Noah. God calls Abraham and says, out of your seed, he's going to come. 
And then later on, he says, David, it, it's your seed, David. It, he's going to be a king. He's going to rule the earth. And he's going to fix all this that's broken. He's going to destroy sin and conquer the devil and make everything the way I meant it to be. And your whole Old Testament is looking forward to the coming one, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and undo sin. God's eternal plan was put into effect in a little Jewish town 2,000 years ago when an angel came and said, you shall name his, your son Jesus for what? He's going to save his people from their sins. See, John 3.16, he says, God so loved the world. He was so intent on graciously restoring and fixing us as broken humanity that he sent his son. Why did he send his son? That whoever believes in him won't perish, won't be judged, won't be cast aside with all that is being judged in the world, but will gain eternal life, perfection, and, and righteous life with God forever. See, grace made full bloom when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God's eternal plan to redeem humanity was in full effect when he brought the Savior. And so Paul says, grace has appeared. Grace has appeared. Paul's gospel was full of grace. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us when we finally figured it out and got it together that he saved us. No. God loved us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul takes pride, Paul takes boasting, Paul takes glory, not in what he brings to God, but he says, God has come and rescued us. God has come and died for sinners. Jesus has come and reconciled us to God. Grace is God pursuing me. God is pursuing you for new life in Christ. And Paul says, before we talk about Christian living, we've got to fix it in our minds, we've got to get it locked down in our hearts, that my relationship to God is founded on God pursuing me on God's grace that he gave me in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point, very point in chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus, that long-promised rescuer from sin has arrived. He initiated it, he brought it, and it's, he is eternally for me for only one reason, and that's because he loves me and he loves you. So God wants to fix in our mind before we talk about how to behave, what we to believe. Is my relationship to God based first on my behavior? No, it's based first on his pursuit of me, his grace in Christ. And so Paul says, grace has arrived. And that's our first word. Let's go to our second word, gratitude. Look at verse 12. Let's start back at 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. But that grace does something. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, the grace of God doesn't just save me. The grace of God sanctifies me. It's so easy to think that God's grace came and, and prevents me from going to hell. When I die, I, I won't be punished forever. I'll be with him in heaven. But God's eternal plan for salvation was much bigger than just redeeming us from judgment. He wants to recreate us in the image of his son. The Christian life throughout the whole New Testament is nothing more than God taking sinful, broken people and remaking them in the image of the creator the way they were supposed to be. And that's a pattern of 
his very son, who is the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says, grace saves us, in verse 12, grace trains us. See, God gives me a new heart. He gave you a new heart when you trusted in Christ. He gave you new inclination. He gave you a new relationship to sin. Romans 6, he says, sin won't be your master anymore. It doesn't rule you. It can't tell you what to do, and you have to obey it. But by birth, my first birth in Adam, your first birth in Adam, we're still rebels. We still have instinct and habit of sin, of rebellion. It's how we were made. It's in our DNA. And so Paul says, though grace arrived, we need training. And he says there's things we need to start do, doing that make us more in the image of God, that make us behave the way we're intended to be created, that make us more like God, to make us godly. And there's things that by instinct and birth and by nature and following this world and belonging to this world and being born to sinful parents that we were doing, and we need to stop doing some of those things. So in Ephesians 4, Paul loves to use the idea of it's like taking off an old dirty coat that's soiled and worthless and setting it aside. And it's putting on a new, fresh, clean garment that reflects who I am now. So there's a, a putting off and a putting on. And Paul uses that very idea here. He says there's things we need to stop doing and there's things we need to start doing. Verse 12, grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and world passions. That's not hard to understand. Anything that's contrary to who God is, ungodliness, and anything that is worldly, that is antithetical to God, he says, Grace wants to train you to stop those things. You don't do them instantaneously when God saves you. He needs to train you what those are to identify those. Outside of Christ, all we know are the natural worldly desires of humanity. And God wants to show us some of those things that are uh, ungodly. They're not like him. They're not good for us. And so he's training us to put off or renounce or to stop certain things. And the second half of verse 12 there, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God doesn't want us to just stop doing certain things. He says, I created you to enjoy this world, to enjoy relationships, to enjoy all the things that I've given you. And I want you to learn to be like me. I want you to learn to be like my son. And so he's telling us, there's things you need to stop, and there's things I'd like you to start. And notice it's an ongoing process. Grace arrived, past tense. Grace is training. Grace is training. Grace is training. And the Christian life is nothing more than the grace of God based upon his love for me and him saving me, teaching me how to be like his son. I was thinking about how this has played out in my own life. I've been walking with the Lord Jesus for about 43 years now. I'm ashamed because I should be so much further along in my walk with him. And, and I think just maybe 10 years ago, I was just having a continual struggle in my own heart of forgiving people who had hurt me. And perhaps you've been there where somebody's done something and it's been tremendously hurtful and they're not sorry. And when they get an opportunity, they hurt me again. And so I'm not going to let them do that. And I get angry because I say, God, you hate that sin and I hate it too, so I hate them. And we justify for a long period of time, this is the way the world works and this is the way I am in Adam. And I'm struggling with this, not for a day, not for a month, but for a lifetime. And I'm reading Luke. Matter of fact, I'm teaching Luke. And I read Luke 6.35. It says that Jesus is telling his disciples, love your enemies. I want to, Jesus. And do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. 
and your reward be great. Oh, I want to reward Jesus. But doggone it, they've hurt me. And you will be sons of the Most High. Oh, God, I want to be your son. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See, see what God did to my heart that day? He is kind to ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I looked at God's word and God's spirit applied to my heart 30 years into my walk with him and said, Keith, look at what God does. Look at his common grace. He gives beauty. He gives families. He gives bounty. He gives wealth. He gives honor to people who hate him. He's a good God. The sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rains come and water the state that we so badly need, even while the state is declaring war against the God of the scriptures. He says, what is your father like? Oh, he's good. What do you want to be like? I want to be like my dad. And so the grace of God trains me to forgive. And I have not had the same relationship of hostility and bitterness and anger in my heart since the day I read that scripture. The grace of God trains us as we expose ourselves to God's word and to God's people who help us. God's word takes us and he says, what about this? Is this part of who you are in Adam or is this part of what it means to be like me? And he was kind. He didn't get mad at me and said, I'm not going to bless you till you figure this out, Keith. He was a loving father who kindly and patiently waited till I was ready to hear his word. And the grace of God trained me and he wants to train each of us. So you're probably asking about now, Keith's using G words here, why didn't he use grace and good works? Because aren't we talking about good works? And I think there's two errors if we call, go right to good works in Christian living. I think gratitude's a better word for two reasons. Let's think through two of them. When we go to grace and we start talking immediately about good works, the Christian life is doing good works. What we immediately do in our fallen sinfulness is we switch the order, don't we? See, we put our good works ahead of grace. If I just behave, God will be good to me. If I just do better, maybe God will want me, or I'll be worthy of God. Or, or maybe the reason why things aren't going well is because I haven't... See, in our hearts, we so want to participate. We don't want God's grace as a natural man who says, God did it all, and I bring nothing to my salvation but my sin. And so man immediately takes good works and puts them in front of grace and says, if you're good... God will give you grace. But isn't that the opposite of the definition of grace? Grace is God pursuing me in the person of Christ. And so when we start talking about good works, it's just so easy to think about this idea of keeping God's law will make me acceptable to God, and I need to do that. You've heard this statement. Ready? Aim. Say the last one with me. Fire, right? When they were training the infantry soldiers and when they used musket rifles in the 18th century, they had a guy on the field who would yell, what? Get your rifle ready, and then aim, and then fire. Now what would happen if they changed the order of those two? Ready, fire, aim. That's going to be fatal for everybody, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's silly. There's an order that has to happen in order for those commands to make sense. And just like that, Paul says, grace arrived. And grace is training you to be godly. Your godly response, your training of becoming like Jesus Christ is not in order to earn God's favor. It's because you have his God's favor. It's not in order to get something from God. It's in order just to say thank you to God. 
And so we want to call it gratitude. Godly behavior is, first of all, gratitude. Second error is people will say, well, I don't want to put good works in front of grace because that would ruin grace. So I want to separate good works from grace. Have you heard this before? So you're saved by grace, period. And if we add anything to that, if we start talking about Christian behavior, start talking about godly actions, start talking about God training us, you're polluting grace because then it's something we're doing. It's not something God's doing. Perhaps you've heard the word, Jesus is my savior, but he's not my Lord. There's a whole movement in Christianity. Christianity has been weakened in America over the last hundred years by this free grace movement that says, no, we want a grace to be God's work in our behalf, and so we don't want to attach any behavioral expectation to that. And so they've completely divorced good works from grace in order to supposedly preserve grace. But notice Paul doesn't do that. He says grace arrives, and what does grace do? Grace trains. Grace tells us what to put off and what to put on, what to start and what to stop. Throughout our Bible, God attaches the expression of godly living, becoming like Jesus, as the natural result of Jesus coming to live inside of us. And so good works flow out of. They're the response to. It's the gratitude. Thank you, God, for transforming my life. What are your goals? Keith, I want to make you like Jesus. I'm all in, Lord. Show me what I need to do. See, the grace of God trains us. And it's a foreign thought to the New Testament that good works would not follow the grace of God in our lives. And so to avoid the error of putting good works and thinking about them differently, I want you to think about gratitude. Godly living is nothing but just a gratitude response. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorites, once said it this way. In all the debates about our role versus God's role in sanctification, our growth in holiness, we'd stay on the right track if we'd remember this grace-gratitude grace, dynamic. The more we understand how kind God has been to us, and the more we are overcome by his mercy, the more we are inclined to love him and to serve him. Do you hear, Sproul? The more you're overcome with grace, that he pursued you, that he has saved you, that when you were his enemy, he died for you. When you hated him, he loved you. When you wanted nothing to do with him, he was coming after you. When you grasp that and you realize God has given me a new heart, God has given me eternal life, God is restoring me to be in the image of my creator, there's this natural response of gratitude, of joy, of wanting to follow and be with him. The more we understand how kind God has been to us, the more we are overcome by his mercy, the more we are inclined to love him and to serve him. So that's two words, grace and gratitude. We have one more. If we stop right now, many of you are going to be frustrated, right? Because if you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, what do you know? You know two things. One, those sinful impulses and that natural flesh, it doesn't go away. Forty-something years in, and I'm still seeing sin in me. And matter of fact, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you see it for what it is, and sometimes the more you hate it within you, and, and you hate it within others. And so, and so sin has not left me. It is still present with me, and not just in my mind, but in my attitudes and in my actions. I still find myself daily needing to be trained by grace. It's not 
getting perfect. It's getting better, but it's not perfect. And the second thing is, I may be God's child. He may be conforming me to the image of his son, but I still live in a sinful world that negatively impacts me on a regular basis. Sin is regularly doing something to those I love and to my family and to me and living in a sinful world, a sinful culture. It can be terribly discouraging. And for a long time, I thought that God had made a terrible mistake. I thought either I didn't understand Christianity because sin was still there and I was trying to be trained and things weren't getting a whole lot better. And there were all these victorious ideas of what it means to be this wonderful Christian. And a lot of times it seemed like the good guys were losing and the bad guys were winning. And it's easy to get demoralized and discouraged. And that's why Paul, as he's writing to Titus, says, the grace of God has appeared. It's training us to become like Jesus. And don't forget, glory is coming. Look with me at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. See, most of the churches I've been in over the years, we talk about the return of Jesus, and that's a theological, dusty, distant, doctrinal discussion to be debated over coffee in a restaurant. It's, it's, a, it's a thing out there, and I remember my youth pastor, when I was first saved, said, oh, I've read the Bible at the end. I'm a, I'm a pan-millennialist. It all pans out in the end. We don't need to worry about it. And, and that's much of my Christian life was lived in this whole idea of Jesus' return is irrelevant for Christians today. It's certainly going to happen. But see, that wasn't Paul's. That wasn't the New Testament. You read through your New Testament. Find a book in your New Testament that doesn't talk about Jesus' return being the source of hope and blessing and encouragement for the daily lives of Christians. It's completely different when you start reading your Bible looking at the return of Jesus. In the book of Romans, Paul spends those wonderful first several chapters talking about sin and everybody being under sin and the wonder of salvation in Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He is just so full and rich. But he gets to chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, Paul says, but man, I see something else happening inside of me. The things I want to do, I still don't do. The things I want to be and know I should be, I don't, I'm not that. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says, as he gets to in chapter 7, it says, I'm a wretched man. What am I going to do? Thanks be to God, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 is a celebration that in the difficulty of the Christian life lived now, we have the hope of guaranteed no condemnation. And when you get to the end of Romans 8, what do you get? No separation from his love. Neither life nor death, things that are going to come, no enemy. There's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God. Turn with me. I'd just like to take a minute to Romans chapter 8 because there's a verse that I think just capital, uh, captures exactly what Paul is interested in when he wants us to think about the return of Jesus. Between no condemnation and no separation in Romans 8. Look with me at verse 18. Paul's talking about the difficulties of living this life now in a sinful world as a sinful man redeemed by Christ. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. So you put it on a scale, everything negative that's happening in my life and the glory that's coming, right? There's just no comparison. 
Why, Paul? Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. See, here's the curse. Here's creation cursed, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. But it was cursed in hope. For the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of what? Of the glory of the children of God. Paul personalizes creation. He says, all of cursed creation is just waiting for the children of God to be revealed. What are you saying, Paul? Look at verse 23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's us today. We also, just like the creation, we're groaning inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you hear Paul living the Christian life saying, it's hard, it's a struggle, but these struggles aren't to be compared with what? Jesus promised he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to undo the curse. Have you read Revelation 21 lately? There's no more sin, no more sadness, no more tears, no more death. Satan is forever done with. God reigns with his people on earth. We live eternally with him in joy and happiness. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus left, the angels told the disciples, why are you looking to heaven? That same Jesus, he's coming back. And the early church said, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when life is difficult, and Paul says, when the sufferings of this present age, when I think about those, I have to think about them in light of the glory that's going to be revealed. Yes, Jesus is going to be glorious. But Paul says, we're going to be glorious too, right? First John 3, see how great a love the Father has loved us, that we should be called children of God. We don't know what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, but we're going to be like him. And everybody who has this hope, John wrote, purifies himself. See, and so when we're living in this life, reflecting back, the grace of God has come. And we're saying, God, okay, by your grace, I'm going to respond to your grace. Train me. Make me like your son. I see the sin within. I see the sin without. I'm discouraged at times. Paul says, don't forget, glory is coming. Looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. My youth pastor was right. We do win. But we need to think about it's not always going to be this way. And whether we die and go to be with Jesus waiting his return to rule planet Earth, or whether he comes, glory is coming. I have some good friends that we're part of a Sunday night fellowship together, and they're in their 80s, so I, when they have something to say, I try and listen. And uh, Kathy said, when Alan and I pray every evening, Alan says something. They've only been married about six or eight years. They were both widowed. She says, it's fascinating to me, but it's been transformative. Alan always prays, Lord, you didn't come back today. And there's something in my heart that said, I like that. And so Patricia and I have had a habit for the number of years. We, we pray most days. In the morning, we pray together. In the evening, we pray together. And we started praying together in the evening, saying, and one of us will usually say, Lord, you didn't come today. And you know what that's done to our hearts? As I'm thinking, Jesus, you could have come today. It causes me to think, as you've trained me, as I've been, okay, that's not so bad, because if you'd come today, yep, I can deal with that. 
and maybe you'll come tomorrow and this won't matter, so I'm just going to relax. See, I, as I'm talking to God about the things and the people that matter in my life, I'm saying to God on a regular basis as I talk to him, Lord, you didn't come today, but there's going to come a day you will come. Right? Jesus taught his disciples to pray, didn't he? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next line? Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's, what are we looking for? We're looking for glory. We're looking for the Lord Jesus to come back and to end this struggle of living in unredeemed flesh and an unredeemed world as his people. So the grace of God has come. Notice finally just how Paul wraps up. God's plans and his purposes for people, they're not cosmic, they're not distant, they're not general, they're not vague. Look at the warmth and the intimacy of verse 14. Let me rack, roll back to 13. We're looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus Christ thought of me, thought of you, if you belong to him when he was on the cross. He gave himself for me. To redeem me. He owned me. I rebelled and he bought me back. And he doesn't want to just own me dirty and messed up and broken. He wants to fix me so he's going to purify me. He wants to purify us. A people for his own possession. Do you hear the heart of God? This is the idea of something that's a treasured prized possession. Something you put on the shelf that everybody can see when they come in your house. He says that's what we are. We are God's pride. Is that grace? I think, God, why would you want us? And he says, no, this is what I'm all about, redeeming, purifying, remaking you in my son's image, purifying you because you're my prized possession. Man, does that make you zealous for good works? Does that make you say, well, if that's where I'm headed, Lord, have at it. Make me like you, Lord Jesus. See, rather than a burden or an obligation, the grace of God creates a gratitude in our heart that causes us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. As we respond imperfectly in sinful bodies, we get frustrated, disappointed. We go, no, it's, it's not always going to be this way. Someday you're going to make it all perfect, Lord Jesus. Someday you're coming, and it's going to be just the way you promised it would be. Let's worship him and give thanks for that. Father, we hear these things, and they're almost too good to be true. If you hadn't said them, we would never believe them. If you hadn't declared your fabulous, famous, unreasonable love for us, broken, rebellious, lost people, we would never believe it. Thank you for the grace that you brought when you brought the Lord Jesus to die in our place, paying for our sins, that we can be redeemed and purified and made all that you intended us to be when you originally created us. Oh, Lord God, thank you for your word that encourages our hearts, that corrects our thinking. Make us grateful people. Keep us focused daily that someday you're coming back, and it could be today. We praise you, we worship you, we thank you in the name of our wonderful Savior, Lord Jesus. Amen.